Hi, I'm Billy Shore. Welcome to Add Passion and Stir. It's our weekly conversation about food, passion, and making a difference in the world. I'm here today with my sister, Debbie Shore, special guest, Rick Bayless from Frontera Grill and Topolabombo. Uh, you may also know him from PBS's Mexico, One Plate at a Time. Really excited to have you, Rick. Thanks for joining us. Oh, it's my pleasure to be with you. You and I may not get to say many more things to each other, Rick, because my sister, she's a huge fan of Mexico and Mexican cuisine, and especially of your cooking and your leadership. And it's a special treat to have you. But I thought I'd let Debbie say a word or two because I know she's just bursting. I'm going to keep it limited, I promise. I have my list, but thank you, Billy. Yeah, Rick, I, I'm... I was so glad, you know, when I wrote you and you just wrote right back. And as I said to my note, you really you really made my day. But for all the reasons Billy said, I think, you know, one of the things I, I think about a lot is when I spent a year in Mexico, I travel, you know, I went to school there in college and then I took a year off and traveled all across the country on a bus every two weeks in a new place. And I don't know if you remember this, but I emailed you and I told you I was going to Mexico and at some point you told me that Topolobamba was the inspiration of a of a town up in Sinaloa. And I had all the time in the world. So I got on a bus and I went to Sinaloa and I went to Sinaloa and I went up to Topolobamba. And I think you told me, and correct me if I'm wrong, I think you eat, you know, I think there was a restaurant that inspired you to start the uh, just the town. No, not so much a, a restaurant that inspired me. The, it, it was. It's a very interesting town because you know there was a utopian colony that was developed there back at the turn of the last century. And when you go through the Copper Canyon, that glorious train ride through the Copper Canyon, you end at Topolobampo. If you drive the full peninsula of, of Baja, um, you take the car ferry across to the mainland and you land in Topolobampo. So it's kind of a crossroads of lots. Of things, but I was kind of inspired by that crazy story of the these people. I, I think they were expats from the U.S., and they settled in Topolobampo and started a utopian colony. Well, it was, you know, I went and had a meal there, and I just sat there, and I, I thought about you, and I thought about your cooking, and I thought about, you know, just the land around me and what inspired you, and of course, it, Mexico has inspired me so much. And, and just the other thing is you were among the very first chefs that responded to probably my, you know, cold call letter to you 35 years ago, and you were just right there to help us raise money for hunger. So about 35 years later, I thought it was time to catch up. And the first chefs were the most important. I mean, that really gave us our start, Rick. It's no exaggeration to say you were really in at the beginning, as Debbie points out, and it just set us on our way. No, it's true. It's, you know, it, it, share strength in the No Canary campaign is much better known now. But those chefs who said, yes, when it, you know, it spoke to you right away, and that really did mean so much. So when I decided to settle in Chicago, um, I I was I wanted to settle here because my wife's family is here, and I wanted to settle someplace that was a big city that had that we had some roots. And I was really inspired by the Mexican uh, population here in Chicago, you know, where Chicago is the first city in the United States to be basically a third white, a third black and a third Latino. And that Latino population is vastly uh, Mexican. So we have a very interesting city here. And I love the vibrancy of the Mexican community here. And I wanted to take inspiration as I had always done from that community. And I knew that I could get really good ingredients for making 
the real food of Mexico in Chicago. And that's one of the reasons that I settled here. But I knew that we had a long ways to go because there was no local agriculture. There was no farmer's markets. What most people thought of Chicago as being a sort of steakhouse town. And I, I thought we were poised to become something better than that. And from the very first day, I wanted to help make this community better. And when you guys reached out to do share our strength here in those very, very early years, I was like, yes, let's do it. Let's, let's galvanize the chef community here, which was very small and burgeoning at that moment. But it was, it, it, it was a lot of very, I would say, visionary people that were in the small chefs community then. Do you know when we opened Frontera Grill, there was only, I think, three chef-owned restaurants in the city of Chicago. The rest of them were parts of bigger organizations or they were restaurateur-owned, but you never heard them talk about the chefs or anything like that. And I just thought the opportunity to band together with those chefs and give back to the community that was supporting us so beautifully, was it was perfect. It was, and I've always been one to sort of live by the motto that I want to make this place better than when I arrived here. And you guys gave us all the tools that we needed to do or to have to do that. Well, I, I know Billy's got a bunch of questions. I just have one more, Bill, before we turn it over to you, which is so I guess you answer this question for me, Rick. But so when you got to Chicago and you met a lot of Mexican people and you kind of fell in love with the food, is that then you started to travel to the country. You don't, you don't, you're not just like one of the best cooks of Mexican cuisine, but you have really just, you know, transformed what people understand about Mexican food and make it easy to actually cook from your books. Oh, thank you. Well, I work really hard on those books because I want them to be useful. I want to set everybody up for success, but I, I've been going to Mexico since I was 14. I, I planned a I know this sounds sort of outrageous, but at 14, I planned a trip for family vacation to for my sister and my parents and I to go to Mexico City. And these were people, we had never taken a vacation that we had gotten on an airplane. We had only gone to places that we could drive to. And I planned this. This was after my eighth grade year. And so I had taken two years of junior high Spanish and I was, man, I was ready to be the interpreter and everything. And of course, that didn't work out too well when I got to Mexico and realized I couldn't talk to anybody hardly. But <laughs> I got to Mexico City and I felt like I had come home. It just at 14 years old, I was like, no, this is the place that I just, I love everything that I see. I want to make this part of my life. And so all through high school, I went back in, in college. I majored in Spanish and Latin American studies. And then I went to graduate school in anthropology and linguistics. And all of those times, all, through all of that, I was really focused on Mexican culture, actually more than Mexican food. But having been raised in a restaurant, the food was just always my my second nature passion. You know, it was just something that I always did. And especially through, well, I worked, I lived at home and I went and, and worked at my family's restaurant from the time that I started working there when I was 14. And then I, I worked there all the way through college. And in, in, in fact, at one point, my, my father got sick when I was in, in high school and he couldn't really work anymore. And so my mother and I had to take over the restaurant. And then toward the end of that, there were times when I was running the restaurant myself and going to college at the same time. But it, it's just in my blood and I love it. I love food. 
first and foremost, but I love the restaurant business too. And so though I had sent myself on a trajectory that was going to wind me up being in academics, which I, I, I love studying and writing, but you know, the truth of the matter was I couldn't stay away from the kitchen. And so by the time I finished graduate school, I had opened a small catering business and I'd started teaching cooking classes. And then I said, okay, I'm going to take a year off from writing my dissertation and I'm just going to explore what it would be like to live in the, the food world. And I loved it. And so I kind of never went back to, to finish that up, but it gave me all of the tools that I needed to then move to Mexico. My wife and I moved to Mexico for five years and, and we actually, we traveled to every single single state in the Republic. We cooked with local cooks. We categorized and, and cataloged everything that was in the markets. I mean, I did it as a as like a PhD dissertation. And out of that, I wrote it for a pop for a popular audience. But um, out of that came my first book, which was Authentic Mexican. That's my favorite. Honestly, it, it is. It is my favorite one. It is a complete, you know, I would not even ever want a new one. I just love the way it looks and smells and and everything else. So yeah, that's that's the one that I love. Well, it's a real snapshot of what people were cooking in the early 80s when we were traveling into every state, every region. And so I really wanted to capture what the culture of Mexico was like that produced that food. So it's not just a, a bunch of recipes, but it's recipes that are set in a context so that you get to know the people that make those things and you get to see how it's sh- it's served and many of the recipes i learned from marketplace cooks and from street stall vendor cooks and so I really wanted to capture the real food of the people. I think I predicted that it was going to be hard for me to get into this conversation. <laughs> but, you know, I was going to say when we were talking about Share Our Strength that since we've gone back 35 years, we might we might as well go back even farther. And you've already done that, Rick, talking about, you know, your travels at the age of 14 and, and your just kind of passion for the Mexican culture. And then I was going to ask you about cooking itself. And you started to talk about that as well. So I'd love to hear a little bit more about your family restaurant. Sometimes people talk about a family restaurant as a restaurant that's owned by their family, but this was, you were all in the three of you, you, your mom, your dad, everybody was in there. It sounds like. Yeah. My sister, my sister worked there. We have a brother as well, but he was not enamored with the restaurant business. and He never really wanted one summer that I was 14. He was 16. And my father tried to give us both jobs at the restaurant. He, my brother lasted about six days, I think. And I just said, this is what I love. And I said, I'll do his job and my job too. And just continued on. And then I never, I never looked back, but I just loved hanging out there and all that. I grew up in a barbecue restaurant in Oklahoma city. And I I know when people talk about the great barbecue cuisines of the United States, Oklahoma barbecue is not usually listed in there, but, and it's, it's lesser known, but it is a very specific style because we are sort of sandwiched in there between Kansas city and Texas. It has little elements of both of it. It's a pork ribs based cuisine, uh, barbecue cuisine, 
but it it's not the the sauce is quite different than the sauce that you would find in it's not as sweet as what they have up in Kansas and it tends to be a little more gutsy like what you would find down in Texas and in the same way Texas barbecue is always dry rubbed and then sauce goes on the side that's the kind of that's the style of Oklahoma as well but we don't in in Oklahoma they don't really do the brisket some people have started doing briskets now there but when I was growing up none of the barbecue places did brisket that was uh, that was for texas and not for oklahoma i feel like i'd love to hear you and our friend danny meyer debate oklahoma versus st louis barbecue that would be a good conversation no it wouldn't it would be incredibly boring because we would both dig our heels in and wouldn't <laughs> move at all and that kind of gets to be boring after a while but what i i really I'm really happy to have been raised in barbecue because it was our our regional food in Oklahoma and people would hire our our restaurant to cater important events in their lives when they wanted to say, we have to celebrate our local cuisine. And the local cuisine of Oklahoma was really barbecue. So I, I was raised with this incredible pride for the stuff that we did. And my family's restaurant never veered off course. Everything was made from scratch and it had lots and lots of vegetable side dishes. It wasn't just about the meat. So like where a lot of vegetable, I mean, where a lot of like what you would call barbecue shacks and stuff like that, just have meat, bread, and sauce pretty much. Ours was a full-on restaurant where you could get a full meal and had have lots of choices for the sides that went with the barbecue that you probably came for. And so I got to, to experience growing up in a, a cuisine that had a lot of pride and a lot of integrity because everything was was cooked to, from scratch, but it also was cooked very meticulously because when you talk to the people that are the pit masters, they're, they're very, very proud of what they do. But at the same time, they it's all about the feel. It's the feel of the fire. It's the feel of the meat cooking and how, how quickly or, or slowly it's cooking, what the position in the pit is, because no pits are, you know, like a convection oven. They've got hot spots and cool spots and moving things around. And so I grew up with this respect for the pit master. And kind of an interesting thing that I, I don't think... I I grew up in a, in a family restaurant where everybody that worked there was part of our family, basically. I mean, I don't mean that literally. I mean that figuratively, that we really all were together. And there was one, the pit master that was there for over 25 years. And when he retired, the next person to step in there was a woman that had worked with us for about 10 years. And I grew up in a in a restaurant where there was not a sense that, oh, men have to do this and women have to do that. We all worked together. And now that we're addressing some of those things in the restaurant world today, I'm kind of dumbfounded because I didn't know it could be any other way. I've certainly run my restaurants in a, a very egalitarian way from that perspective. And I think back a lot on the fact that for the last 10 years that my, my mother ran that restaurant, it it had a female pitmaster and nobody wrote an article about it. Nobody said anything about it, but she was great. She was as good as the, the guy that had done it for 25 years, but she had also worked with us for a, a long time and so had her mother. But everybody in our restaurants just pitched in and just did everything, which is, I think, one of the great things about being 
in a family-run restaurant because it's it really is very familial. And did you ultimately sell it or close it or what happened to the family restaurant? Well, my mother, I was long gone by that point living in Mexico and my mother turned 65 and she just decided that she wanted to do something else. My mother, she passed away last year and she was just quite a character. A very, very outgoing woman that people really loved. And I think that she's one of the the reasons that the place uh, succeeded for 37 years. But she, when she was in her 50s, got really into golf. And so when she turned 65, she retired to play golf pretty much full time. And she was super competitive. And she was always like, she was state champion for her age group, you know, and all that kind of stuff. And she was, she really did it. But up until she was like in her late seventies, maybe in her, into her eighties, she would golf several times a week. Wow. Well, you know, Deb, as Rick was talking and he used the phrase uh, being raised in barbecue, I was going to ask you how you would describe uh, how we were raised. Yeah. I was going to say raised in chipped ham. We had this ter- terrible delicacy at an ice cream store <laughs> in Pittsburgh. Uh, and for some reason, the two things they sold were about 30 flavors of ice cream and chipped ham. I guess that's how we were raised. Yeah, very thinly, like paper thinly sliced ham. And they, they call Why it was it sold ham. in an ice cream store? Good. Have you ever stopped to wonder? I, yeah, I really don't. It was ice lace. What, what, what did they do with it? Put it on the ice cream? No, you would just. No, it was separate. It would be, you know, you would just get, you get like a white, you know, like a white paper package of it. And you, it was pretty good, actually. You take it home and you put it on a sandwich. But you're right, Billy. It was, it was for some reason in an ice cream store. Oh, that's how we were raised. So you know, before you, before you got on, Rick was telling me about kind of just the state of the industry. I know we're switching big topic here, but we do want to hear one, you know, about your restaurants, Rick, but also just what's happening in Chicago and how you're thinking about you know, the future of the restaurants. Well, and especially as you, you know, Rick, as you were talking about traveling in Mexico with your wife and going to every state, and that feels in the midst of this pandemic, that feels like such a long gone romantic notion and fantasy. Uh, it, was, it was almost making my mouth water and my eyes tear just to think that that was something people used to be able to do. And of course, someday will again, but but then to jump ahead and to find us now six months into a pandemic that's devastated so many Americans and, and the restaurant industry, as Debbie said, would love to hear about how you how you're navigating it. Well, I haven't left Chicago. Really, I haven't left our neighborhood, the neighborhood where our restaurant is, uh, for six months, and that's kind of surprising to me because. I am a real passionate traveler. I love culture and I love to go visit places and learn about how other people view the world and to have been settled here for this last six months and not really moving very much has given me a new perspective on some things and not a bad one at all. I can say, I I mean, I'm a very lucky person and probably a lot of our listeners have felt incredibly cooped up. And basically I've gone between my house, which has a really big, beautiful garden in the back and the restaurant. And like I said, we never closed at all. And it's been a wild ride of trying to figure out, you know, PPP money and furloughs and laying people off and bringing people back and 
people on our staff that qualified for unemployment and those that didn't qualify for unemployment and trying our best to take care of our, I mean, we had, a, we laid on Clark Street, we have four restaurants together, but uh, on Clark Street alone, we, we had to lay off 190 people on one day. And I've never faced anything like that. I was devastated. It was the hardest thing that I've ever done because so many of the people in the restaurant business, well, pretty much everybody, nobody's got big big savings accounts that they can say, oh, that's fine. I've got enough to weather the next several months in my bank account. They don't. Most people live more or less paycheck to paycheck. And all of a sudden I was I, I was super fearful for our staff. Uh, we were very lucky to be able to really, within the two weeks, get some funding to do a food relief box for um, not only our staff, but for staff all through the restaurant industry in Chicago. And I motivated all these chefs to come and pick them up and we were able to hire back some of our staff to put these boxes together. And so twice a week, we produce 600 boxes of 35 pounds of food each, enough for a family of four to eat for several days on. And it was all real food. There was nothing processed in it. Thank goodness people in the restaurant industry usually know how to cook. And so we were able to give them really honest, natural food that they could do that. And we did that for 12 weeks. Wow. And where did those boxes go, Rick? Well, the thing, they certainly went to our staff, but then we motivated all these chefs to come and pick up boxes for their staff. So we would be in contact with them and we would say, and we chose chefs all over the, the city. And we'd say, you know, how many chef, how many do you, do you need for your restaurant? And they'd say 12 or 15. And then we would ask them to look around, you know, on their block or in their neighborhood and say, can you support apply for another restaurant or two in that neighborhood. And so then they got into this uh, distribution channel with us because that was the hardest thing. We could make the boxes, but we didn't know how to get them out to all of these people in need in the city of Chicago. And sometimes people would just come to the restaurant on the Mondays and Thursday afternoons and just, they would just walk up and, and ask for a box. And, you know, we, we ask, oh, what restaurant do you work in? And they would tell us what it was. And then they would, we would give them a box, but it was 600 boxes. If you can imagine that, that each box we said had about 1200, uh, 12 full adult meals in it. So it was, we were producing a lot of food for people. And we did that, as I said, for 12 weeks straight until we- And were you raising money locally to kind of help offset some of it? Well, the very first one, the first one that we did was just a seat of the pants thing because one of the big suppliers, U.S. Foods here in Chicago, just contacted us through another person and said, we just got to empty our, our walk-ins here because this stuff's all going to go bad. Could you help us to do it? And I said, absolutely. We can figure that out in a flash. So the first one was willy-nilly just packing boxes with stuff that we were given. And then after that, um, we worked with a, a family foundation here in Chicago 
Chicago to fund the whole thing. Because as I said, we were close. We, we, we were in real desperate situation with the restaurant. So we had to look elsewhere for funding. But we got a family foundation very quickly, literally overnight after we made our proposal and gave it to them to say, yes, they would fund it. And they, they were super great to work with us. And then they, they supplied us all the money that we needed for the entire the entire thing. And in addition to U.S. foods, then we would buy all of our food from U.S. foods that we would pack for into these boxes. So it helped out U.S. foods as well and kept some of their people working. And so what did you transition to after the 12 weeks of that? That was when we were able to open up for outdoor dining. And we were using our dining rooms to do all the packing of the boxes. And we had stuff everywhere for this project because we had all the boxes and all the packing stuff because they would give us, you know, 50 pound bags of of macaroni or something like that. And we had to portion it out. So we had all of the equipment to do that in our dining rooms. And then we had to tidy all that stuff up so that we could open for outdoor dining. And and then we were able to hire back a whole lot more of our staff when we were able to do go to the outdoor dining. And then, of course, that transitioned in for us here in Chicago to a 25% interior capacity as well. And that's where we have been now for the last, it seems like the last lifetime, but it's probably only been about it can't even be eight weeks. Are you seeing people, are people coming in, Rick? Are you filling up that like 25%? Uh, we don't even open it. Well, we've been very lucky because just recently our street, well, for the last four weeks, three days a week, our street in front of our restaurant's been closed. So we could, could expand on Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, our dining rooms out into the street. And that's been very, very successful for us. But this week, it's been incredibly rainy. And so it's like our business has fallen to almost nothing. And we so we haven't even set it up out in the street. But now it's it's seven days a week. They've allowed us to close the street for seven days a week. But we haven't used it at all this week because that just started this week. But we haven't used it because the weather's been sort of dreary, overcast, colder. I mean, I don't think in Chicago that we can say 65 degrees is cold. But when it's damp outside, it feels cold. Rick, from everything I've read, your response to this pandemic has been in many ways multifaceted. I know that there's a Frontera Farmers Foundation that's made grants to help small farms in this time of need that you've been involved in, efforts to get restaurant stabilization legislation passed. Talk about some of the other ways that you've had to deal with this. Well, right at the very beginning of the pandemic, a small group of, of chefs formed chefs and restaurateurs formed the independent restaurant coalition and uh within a couple of weeks of that they invited me to be part of that group and so i've been one of the active people in that and that group was put together primarily no i'm going to say exclusively to hire lobbyists to get into Washington and help move legislation that would help the restaurant industry. Because the one thing that independent restaurants have never had any representation in Washington, and yet we are the second largest 
employer in the United States. I mean, there's like 11 million people that work in in restaurants in the United States, and most of them are independent restaurants. So we needed some representation, and we had to learn lots of things. And this group of, of chefs and restaurateurs across the United States just grew and grew and grew and grew. Well, what we finally have come up with is the Restaurants Act. And we got our representative Blumenauer to to sponsor it in the House and somebody else in the Senate. And it is it, it basically is a $120 billion package. And I, I know that probably a lot of our listeners will say, oh, that's out the window because of all the the craziness that's going on in Congress right now. But these we, we just got 11 more senators to sign on as co-sponsors. I think now we're up into the like high 30s of co-sponsoring senators. We're almost to 200 in the House of Representatives as co-sponsors because people are beginning to realize that the restaurant industry, just like, say, the, the airlines industry, needs a special carve-out because we have a very different business model And if we don't, if we're just lumped into all independent businesses, we're likely going to go out of business. You know, there's many statistics and many people have done a lot of a lot of surveying out there. But almost every survey comes up with the fact that by the end of the year, you can expect well over 50 percent of the restaurants to have gone out of business. I, I could say right now, if we have to pull back, we are we can do 25% on the inside and do some takeout business, but we have to pull back from the outdoor seating because the weather changes in Chicago in the fall and people won't be sitting outside. And if we're stuck with that, I will tell you by the end of the year, we'll be out of business as well. And I, every restaurant tour that I know would tell you the same thing. So I would guess that well over 50% of the restaurants are going to be out of business unless the government helps us to get through this hard part. And the hard part is going to be this next winter because business slows down in the winter anyway. And if we don't get some assistance, I'm just afraid that we're going to see our neighborhoods just devastated because you just think about it. I mean, you, you have a neighborhood restaurant that you love and that when you have to raise money for the kids uh, softball team or whatever it might be, school projects or whatever, you go to those places and you go, oh, we're going to have a, an auction at school. And could you give us a gift certificate? You don't go to the chain restaurants and ask for that stuff. You go to the neighborhood restaurants that really are part and parcel of who you think you are in that neighborhood and that have family in that neighborhood. These are the kinds of places that are going to be gone and the neighborhoods are going to be, they're going to be devastated. I think they're going to lose their character. For me, it's really important for us to to recognize that and to, for everybody to write to your your Congress people and, and say, you know, you got to pass this Restaurants Act because that's going to save our culture in so many ways because restaurants are a major part of our culture. So this is really important, I think, especially to, for people who are listening right now to understand that this is urgent and it's not too late reaching out to members of Congress, to your senators, to your members of the House of Representatives. This may not get dealt with until Congress comes back after the November election. Things are pretty gummed up right now. But even then, this could make a difference in terms of what you were just talking about, about the hard part coming this next winter. This Restaurant Act could save family and independent restaurants all across this country. And folks got to light up that Capitol switchboard or send your emails so that Congress acts on this. It's not too late. 
Yes, and you can get a lot of uh, good resource material for all of that by going to saverestaurants.com. That's the Independent Restaurant Coalition's website. And you can just click resources and you can find out who your Congress people are and you can find out exactly that they'll have all the information right there for who you should write to or who you should rick as you're you're talking you 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 have such great energy all of the time but when i go back to the earlier part of this conversation when you're talking about barbecue and uh and growing up in barbecue and you're actually talking about food it feels like your energy levels were you know just kind of off the charts and i was just going to ask you that's that's a hard thing to sustain at a time like this what what are you doing personally to manage and balance your stress and anxiety and maintain your health. There's so many things to, to worry about. We have a staff who's performing at an unbelievably high level at Share Our Strength and the No Kid Hungry campaign, but they're doing it with a lot of stress, whether it's kids at home that they've got to deal with or worrying about their family members who might be vulnerable. What, what are your just personal secrets to staying so healthy? I'm very lucky because I get to come to work every day and I'm surrounded by people who have trusted me with their careers and to to keep this place fresh. And I will say that their support has been the greatest thing. If I get off in the corner by myself, I can plummet pretty fast. But being around all these people that I care about so much and who are so supportive and that they have given me the energy, I'll tell you that right right away, that they have given me the energy to go through this whole thing. That, I will say, I have two more things that I have done. One was to cook a lot. And I, that, that might sound really odd to come out of a, a chef's uh, mouth, but Everybody has to realize that when when you are a chef of a restaurant, you're not cooking a dish from beginning to end. You're involved in all different aspects of, of the preparation, but you're not necessarily like creating it and then sitting down and eating it all. So I started cooking a lot at home because it grounded me. And then for the first six weeks of the pandemic, I knew I had to give some structure to my life because we were closed for everything, but just one restaurant doing takeout. And I committed to doing a Facebook live every day, cooking a dish live and teaching people about the food that I loved the most. And that was the most grounding thing for me. So five days a week, I, I did this. I had no staff. So I had to gather all the ingredients myself, go to the store, whatever it was. I had to do all the prep work. I had to teach the class and it was live. So, you know, when you're when you're shooting t- PBS, if you mess something up, you just go back and reshoot it. Right. No, this was live. So I was cooking without a net. I had to finish the dish and the dish had to look really good at the end of my half hour or whatever that I was cooking. And it really I used to do that a lot, uh, do a lot of live to tape things. So I, I kind of got back in the groove of that. And I loved that. And cooking at home every weekend because the the terrain looks so bleak in in my world. Every weekend, I made a really fancy celebration cake. 
and I would spend about four hours making this cake. And then I would sit down with my daughter and son-in-law who were quarantined with us, and we would have a lovely long dinner where it was like a big celebration dinner. Every week we did that to realize that there is good stuff out there in the world and we can't let it get too far out of our our minds. And then the last thing I will say, so I... I I, I worked, I, I surrounded myself with people that didn't let me get down and I cooked a ton and, uh, and including a lot of celebration like things. And then the last thing I did was a lot of yoga and I'm super into yoga and have been for 25 years. And I will say that I had to like really up the amount of time I spent because it's not, it's not too hard for me to sort of plummet in my spirit and I needed to get in and in in my yoga practice really amp things up get into like a lots and lots of breathing exercises and stuff like that because the breath work especially was the stuff that really centered me so that's what I did Rick you know along those same lines with your cooking I'm I was thinking about you know I mean I haven't been to Mexico in six months Obviously, you haven't been, and I'm sure you've, you know, this might be the longest you've not traveled to Mexico, I'm guessing. It so, is, without right. a doubt. <laughs> so how, on, not like you have so many recipes, it's not that you need to go there to be inspired, but you do need to be inspired. I'm sure you are in Mexico. So what did you, how were you cooking with just without having, you know, traveled to Mexico? Were you just kind of like recreating stuff you already had or how are you doing that? YouTube. It's really amazing what's on YouTube. And for all of our listeners that, especially people who have maybe studied some Spanish and want to sort of practice their listening skills and stuff like that, there is there are a lot of great YouTube videos from people that just regular everyday people that are cooking and showing you their specialties and stuff. Because in Mexico, when you show your specialties, you're showing your regional specialties. It's not like in the States where people want to show some sort of uh, expression of their own creativity. No, it's usually about a regional specialty. So there is one YouTube channel that I have to tell everybody about because I am... I'm not the only one, but millions of people have really latched onto this, especially in the last six months. But it's in Spanish, it's called De, uh, De Mi Rancho a Tu Cocina, From My Ranch to Your Kitchen. Oh, yeah. The, late, the, the older woman? Yes. Yeah, I love her. I, everybody loves her. And she's cooking. She is the person that I learned everything from in those five years that I was living in Mexico. She embodies. Oh, she's everything. in Oaxaca, right? No, she's in Michoacan. And she won't say where she is. But, but she's in the one of the, the uh, highest rated shows or most watched shows on YouTube. And she is just cooking like people on a rancho cook in Michoacan. And she always starts off the same way, welcoming everybody into her kitchen. She's no nonsense. Matter of fact, and then she, at the end of it, she tastes what she, she made. And she always says the same thing. Oh, that's good. Just like I like it. I mean, she's at the end of every single one of them. And I am so in love with her. Um, it's great stuff to watch while you're going to sleep at night because shes it's just like hanging out with your grandmother. She's quite, she's quite entertaining and very endearing. She really is. Very. Yeah, yeah. I've watched her a few times. Fantastic. Well, I feel like if I get down for any reason, I'm going to move to Chicago, quarantine for two weeks, and then come to your house. 
Rick, that sounds like the place <laughs> to be. Deb, I'm gonna. I've got one last question, then I'm gonna give you the last word because we've got to we've we've got to wrap up. But but my question really, Rick, has to do with kind of what the future of the industry looks like or what you think the future of your restaurants might look like, how they'll be different. We've heard a lot about how this pandemic has, you know, kind of taken the veil off of some of the inequity that exists and how we need to, you know, not just do things the same way, but find ways to in the future to do things different when we're able to. Uh, Any sense of whether things will look different for you? Any vision for the industry? Well, we have always sort of, I would say, marched to a different drummer in our restaurants. We have been, we we look at our our restaurant as you know, not just a, you know, a financial enterprise, just as a business. But we have always wanted to create the world to be better than it was when before we were here, and to create a just like in the restaurant that I grew up in, I wanted to create a really strong sense of family here. We have, we we're kind of out of the loop, even though we have, you know, a four star fine dining restaurant with a Michelin star and all that sort of stuff. We don't tap into the pool of the cooks that move from one of those kinds of restaurants to the next one. And the same with the wait staff. We have always done a lot of promoting from within and looking for our staff is in our restaurant is 50% male and 50% female and that we've always been that way and we it's mixed front and back and everything and because my wife and I run the place and she's the front and I'm the back we have really put a lot of energy into that but I will tell you my eyes have been opened during all of the sort of rays of consciousness around black lives matter and the inequities in our own community and we have been talking to a lot of chefs around Chicago about how we can promote the the kinds of enterprises that support the restaurant industry that are black owned and try to change some of the inequity in in that kind of, of thing we have switched our way of paying our service staff now that they are not on the sub-minimum wage tip credit thing. They are now, and this just started during the quarantine because we were able to reinvent ourselves. Um, so now they're paid by the hour. A service charge goes on to every every check, just like you would leave a tip. But that service charge then goes to, to pay everybody in the restaurant in a more equitable way. So we've been able to, something we've been wanting to do for a long time, and we took the opportunity during the pandemic pandemic to do that. And so we're, we, I will say that I am my, my big, my big focus, and I will say I don't have any big projects that are sort of focused on this yet, but I have this in great desire in, I mean, I have to say this, that like just a year and a half ago, we started a training program in one of the most underserved neighborhoods in Chicago, the West Side. And it was for the youth, not youth, but the young adults over there, 16 to 24 years old, to give them the the skills to work in restaurants. But we didn't stop there. We got all the, the chefs, the best known chefs in Chicago to come out and teach in that program and then to mentor those students for a month in their restaurants as a sort of internship. And that program was super, super successful as a way of trying to bring opportunity to people who don't have opportunity or haven't had opportunity. And we had amazing success stories 
that program is closed right now because we can't do that kind of stuff. And there's no need for people to be, you know, doing apprenticeships in the restaurants because there's so many people out of work in the restaurant world. But we're going to bring that back. But I'm looking for other ways to to work in the south and west side that are totally underserved, where the so many of the people don't have opportunity to bring opportunity in uh, to them. And we'll find other ways of doing it. And we're going to resurrect the the program. It's called the Impact Program at the Hatchery, and I, I think we're going to be we're, we're going to come back strong with that program, but we just can't do it right now. So inspiring! Great to hear that, Deb. Yeah, I, well, thank you for telling us about that. That's really that's interesting, Rick, and would love to hear more about when you do get that back up and running. You know, I would just close by a little bit how we started. I thank you again for helping us launch the organization. You know by being such an early supporter, it meant a lot to us and it meant a lot to other chefs who knew that you were involved. I was, I'm on my way to a, um, like a little outdoor dinner tonight and I was asked to make guacamole because I always bring it. I make it authentic and it made me remember, and I don't know if you remember, Rick, but do you know how that you, do you know how you've described an avocado? Do you remember how you wrote about it in One Plate at a Time by any chance? I'm going to read it because it is, it is so beautiful. Okay, here is your description of an avocado. Was there ever a fruit as sensual as an avocado? So rough hewn, dare to touch me masculine on the outside, so yielding, inviting, soft spring green and feminine on the inside. I, I just thought that was so beautiful and I had to close with it. Wow. I just heard an interview with my favorite poet, Mary Oliver, and the interviewer was was reading a, a Mary Oliver poem to her, and she said, Mary Oliver said, when did I write that? <laughs> so I would say, "I when did I write that? I loved that. I'm going to have to go look that up. That was a beautiful, that's right at the beginning of uh, One Plate at a Time, which uh, for our viewers is the companion book to the PBS series, One Plate at a Time. So it is, you know, it is a Something that we eat, obviously, like every day in this house with every meal. And it was just, it's such a staple here. And I loved that description of the avocado. So thank you. Thank you for reading that. And Rick, as for your favorite poet, we've got one of our most valued colleagues, Chuck Schofield, who's been with us over 20 years as a poet. And yesterday, he sent me an email to remind me that yesterday was Mary Oliver's birthday. It was the day she was born in 1935. And he wrote that from the time she was young, she knew that, I think this is an excerpt from somebody else, from the time she was young, she knew that writers did not make very much money. So she sat down and made a list of all the things in life that she would never be able to have. A nice car, fancy clothes, eating out at an expensive restaurants were all on the list. But she decided she wanted to be a poet anyway. Anyhow, that's the, that's the reason we all love Mary Oliver. <laughs> oh man, she does some, or she, she did some really amazing work. Yeah, this has been such an energizing conversation. Thank both of you. It's really, really a special treat to have you on, Rick. We've been talking to Rick Bayless from Chicago, who's been home at six months. He'll probably be in Mexico as soon as he and we all have an opportunity to travel again, but just doing such important work in your community right now and everything that Frontera Grill and uh, your restaurants have always stood for just becomes more important in a moment like this. So thanks so much for being with us, Rick. Thank you for the invitation. It's been just such a joy to chat with you guys. I know it feels long overdue. I'm glad we've reconnected. I'll be right behind you on the, on the way to Mexico. Okay. <laughs> All right. So on behalf of uh, Debbie Shore and myself, 
Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Add Passion and Stir. You can go to our website, addpassionandstir.com and find other episodes and you can rate them and rank them and subscribe and share them with your friends. Special thanks to the entire team at Share Our Strength and the No Kid Hungry campaign that makes this possible. And also for our producer, Paul Whittle at District Productive. I'm Billy Shore. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.